warm greetings to all our brethren around the world, and hope you're having a wonderful day and wonderful Sabbath day. We are, of course, uh, facing uh, severe trials around the world, and uh, Texas, as you know, had a severe winter storm that uh, caused uh, two, over two million people uh, to be without power for about four or five days. And in addition to that, about 14 million uh, were without pure drinking water for several days. So Mr. Weston has warned us to be prepared for sudden emergencies. And uh, his uh, July-August Tomorrow's World magazine article, Then Comes Sudden Destruction. He writes, The end of this age will come suddenly, and for most unexpectedly. Yet those who are watching will not be caught unaware. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 4. Our world is growing morally and financially bankrupt gradually. The suddenly will soon follow. That's uh, Mr. Wesson's article from the July-August 2019 Tomorrow's World magazine. Then comes sudden destruction. So our world is going morally and financially bankrupt gradually. The suddenly will soon follow. And, of course, that's from Thessalonians 5, verse 3. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pain upon a pregnant woman. Uh, they shall not escape. So God wants us to be prepared. I've taken the survey before, but how many of you have safe drinking water for your family for at least one week? Let's see your hands. Oh, good. That's about... Uh, Sixty-five percent of you. How many have safe drinking water for two weeks for your family? Okay, that looks like more or less about forty-three uh, percent. So uh, we need to do our best. The uh, in 2010, two million people in Boston, Massachusetts, were out water for almost two weeks, and FEMA gives this standard for preparation, emergency preparation. The rule of thumb is a disaster planning community is to prepare for a three-day emergency. And when it comes to water, FEMA, FEMA, F-E-M-A, argues for at least one gallon per person per day. So if you have a four-person family, uh, that's 12 gallons for three days, or for a week, uh, 28 gallons. So in Amos, the fourth chapter, it tells us, I also will held rain from you. And when there were still three months to the harvest, I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water. But they went, they were not satisfied, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So we'll be experiencing these kinds of trials and tests, even for our whole nation and other nations around the world. Here in Charlotte, we've been pretty blessed with, with precipitation. In 2020, uh, we had 58 point inches of rain, and that was about 14 to 15 inches of rain above normal. This year so far, 2021, we've had 8.64 inches, when last year it was 6.22 inches. So we've got even a 39% a raise in precipitation for 2021 for the Charlotte region. 
And, of course, God tells us, and Mr. Wesson has quoted that scripture several times, uh, Proverbs 22.3, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. That's repeated in Proverbs 27 and verse 12. Proverbs 22.3 and Proverbs 27.12. So we're thankful that God is blessing us for the time being, but we need to be prepared for the challenges ahead. And, of course, most of us are preparing for the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Uh, My wife and I will be traveling to Houston, Texas for the first half of the Days of Unleavened Bread and uh, come back here for the second half of the Days of Unleavened Bread. And most of us have started the process of examining ourselves. And we do that in many different ways. And you'll be hearing more sermons and more messages on preparing for the Passover and examining ourselves. So in today's sermon, we'll discuss two challenges that should help us prepare with a positive attitude for the Passover. The title of the sermon today is Godly Thinking and Meditation. Godly Thinking and Meditation. Turn in your Bible to Malachi, the third chapter, Malachi 3. So as we approach the Passover, the days of unleavened bread, we need to consider God's great, great promises and awesome blessings. We're practicing a way of life that gives us those blessings and peace of mind and happiness and joy uh, when we claim God's promises. Malachi 3 and verse 10, with which you're all familiar. Malachi 3 and verse 10. that there may be food in my house, and try me now herewith, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So when we think about godly thinking and meditation, what should you think about? Well, you want to think about God's blessings and his promises, and of course his holy word, Matthew 4.4 and Luke 4.4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So we'll consider two challenges today. One, strive to have the mind of Christ and to think the thoughts of God. Number one, strive to have the mind of Christ to think the thoughts of God. And number two, practice godly meditation. It will help prayer, help us prepare in a positive way uh, for the Passover. Practice godly meditation, and it will help us prepare in a positive way for the Passover. We'll turn to 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. 2 Corinthians 10. Here is one of the greatest challenges in the, in the Bible for Christians and for human beings, you might say. It seems this almost seems like an impossible challenge to to fulfill. Second Corinthians ten, starting with verse three. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So God does give us power, the power of His Holy Spirit. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. 
So again, just think in terms of your thinking and meditative process. You need the knowledge of God. I think we had a sermon, uh, an introduction to the knowledge of God. Against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Think about that. Being... Bring, bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. Uh, are all your thoughts of the captivity of Christ? That's a real tremendous challenge. And yet, God gives us the ability to do it. How can we have that kind of fulfillment of bringing every thought of the captivity and obedience of Christ? We need the mind of Christ and to think the thoughts of God. How do we accomplish that? I've told you the story before that when I was first baptized, I think it was in my first year, when Satan went after me and all these evil, all blasphemous thoughts would come into my mind and it was just a really challenge. How do I, how do I get rid of these thoughts that have come flooding into my mind? Well, of course, Mr. Armstrong would tell the story. How do you get air out of a bottle? You put water into the bottle and that expels the air. So, I started memorizing scriptures. I started memorizing Philippians 4, verse 8. Whatsoever things are true, honest, pure, lovely, of a good report, if there be any excellence, or think on these things. And so I would, when those bad thoughts would come into my mind, I, I would recite Philippians 4, 8. And to think on these things, to think on the word of God. And so I hope that many of you have, of course, made it a part of your very character, a part of your very memory, a very mind, the very word of God that's a part of you. And, of course, Jesus Christ, when he met Satan, he had, he, did wrong thoughts come into his mind? Well, what did Satan say to him? Uh, that was in uh, Matthew, uh, where was it, uh, you know, you know, Matthew 4 and verse 8, uh, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, this is what came into Jesus Christ's mind. Satan said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You can think of a worse thought of anyone's mind, but of course that wasn't Christ generating that thought. It was a thought that came into his mind from Satan. But how did Christ manage that? How did he fight and bring that thought into captivity? He quoted scripture. That's what he did. He said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So we defend our minds with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And that's why it's so important that you read your Bible every day, and it makes it a part of your very Christian living routine. We have uh, several sermons about protecting your mind. It was one uh, actually uh, by Mr. Rod King. Uh, sermon number 721, Protect Your Mind. And then Dr. Douglas Winnale gave a sermon, The Battle for Your Mind, uh, number 792. 
And then Dr. Meredith gave one on Learn the Mind of Christ. That's sermon number 855. And another one by Dr. Meredith, number 896, Seek Christ's Mind. Well, that's contrasted to the common mind of man. And, of course, the common mind of man is the mind you had uh, before you were converted for the most part. It turned to Psalm 94 and verse 10. What kind of mind does the common man or common woman have? Psalm 94. Psalm 94 and verse 10. He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge. The eternal knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. And the uh, when that's quoted again in 1 Corinthians 3, and uh, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 20, and in the King James Version, it's quoted, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. And the NESB, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are useless. So that's the thinking of the world. And the thinking of the world has brought us to where we are. Where we are is headed for total cosmocide, unless Christ intervenes. And we have that the good news. During Noah's day, what was the thinking of the common man and the common woman and the common child? Genesis 6, 5, I won't turn there, I'll just read it to you. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And Jesus said, as in the days of Noah shall be the coming of the Son of Man. So we're coming to that point in time where the thoughts of man are becoming more evil. But turn to Isaiah 55 and verse 6, which gives us the contrast between human thinking and God's thinking. Isaiah 55, and most of you are familiar with this verse, one we quote on the telecast and in our articles often, but one that's also a promise of God. And one I hope that you're claiming and acting upon Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the eternal while he may be found. We know there's not much time. I'm, even uh, Mr. Weston in one of his uh, co-worker letter recently said, the time is short. Now, we used to say that quite a bit in the past and have not for, I think, for some time used that kind of urgency. But we realize the time is getting short. Seek the eternal while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He's accessible now. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And some of you may be battling with some kind of addiction, whether it's pornography or some other kind of addiction. Let them forsake his thoughts, the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Let him return to the eternal, to the Lord, 
and He will have mercy to Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. We know that our young people in the world and even many adults are just facing all kinds of temptations. And you have to fight that temptation. Make sure that you're saturating your mind with the Word of God. Of course, that's uh, the quotable quote. I remember Dr. Meredith giving that in an assembly in Big Sandy at Ambassador College around 1970s, sometime in the 70s. He said, saturate your mind with the Word of God. So you think think that. He goes on in verse 8 to say, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Well, he's talking to the common man. I hope for us, God's thoughts are our thoughts. For your thoughts are not our, your thoughts, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Eternal. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But God has called us to think the way He thinks. Philippians, the second chapter, turn to uh, Philippians 2. And of course, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. We have to have the mind of Christ. And that's what it tells us here in Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians, second chapter. Let's get the microphone here. Philippians 2. And well, we'll start with verse 3, Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition and conceit. Again, that's the common mind of man. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem or value others better than himself. And I always remember another quote from Dr. Meredith. It was during the time of a great... Um, uh, hurricanes, typhoons in Bangladesh. They were devastated. And uh, Dr. Meredith wrote in his co-worker letter that every human being is precious in God's sight. Esteem others, value others more than yourself. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Yes, the way we think, the way we meditate, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, as the Greek has it, taking the form of a a bond servant, And coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So he came as a servant, as a bond servant. And that's the mind of Christ. That should be, of course, our dedication and our commitment that we are to be servants, bond servants, Christ, actually slaves of righteousness and the slaves of Christ. What kind of a mind do we have? A mind of service. And that's what the mind of Christ was like. But now can a converted mind also include secular knowledge? Well, God wants us to apply the seven laws of success. And, uh, in fact, 
We have in the Tomorrow's World magazine that just came out, uh, this is the March issue of the Tomorrow's World magazine, a dramatic cover, The Rise of the New Gods. The ancient heathen gods of old have been replaced. Are the replacements any better? And then we have articles, The Hard Things and The Seven Laws of Success. So hopefully you'll be getting this March issue uh, next week in your, your home mailbox. Uh, a dramatic uh, uh, magazine. And people are very happy. Some of our subscribers are happy that we're going with ten uh, issues a month, uh, a year now, rather than just the six. In that article, law number two, prepare yourself. We'll read from that article in the upcoming Tomorrow's World magazine on the seven laws of success. More than ever, we need to increase our knowledge just to keep up with our goals. You should never stop learning, but you must also be sure that what you are learning is true. In the book of Proverbs, we read that true knowledge begins with an awe and reverence of God as a source of wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1.7. And again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, Proverbs 9, verse 10. The article continues, are you growing in wisdom? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, Second Peter 3.18? Our Savior is the key to true Christian success. To reach your goal, you need to educate yourself and prepare to achieve that goal, whether physical or spiritual. You need God's wisdom and knowledge. So when we think of the mind of Christ, we think of spiritual knowledge. But this physical knowledge, God expects us to grow in wisdom and knowledge as well. Did did Jesus have secular knowledge? Well, of course he did. In uh, Mark 6 and verse 3, he's referred to as a car- the carpenter. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Well, Jesus had to learn knowledge of car- carpentry, of woodworking, of stone masoning, and others feel that it was not just a woodworking, but it was more of an engineering architectural skill uh, that Jesus had. So he had to learn physical, secular knowledge. And that's fine. That's what we all must do. But that purpose of that knowledge is what? To serve and to benefit humanity and, of course, for us to benefit the church as well. And what else was secular knowledge? Who else had secular knowledge? Well, there was Luke, the beloved physician, and it's referred to in Colossians 4, verse 14. So obviously Luke, the beloved physician, had certain knowledge about the body and about physical health processes. So yes, some of you have a college education, I have a civil engineering degree and worked as a surveyor and as a transportation engineer. And I loved my job. And I believe God gave that job to me. We were planning the future of Southeast Virginia for five cities and three counties in 1961. For 1985, we were planning 
24 years in advance. And now we're quite a four years past that. Uh, but what we had planned, some of those uh, plans in highways and transportation and, and uh, zoning and that Southeastern Virginia Regional Planning Commission came together for the benefit of humanity, the benefit of those citizens. But now we have the, uh, the rise and fall of new gods. And uh, Mr. Wallace Smith has a section in here. That's his, the title of his his article, uh, New Gods, New Sins, and that's the title of one of his telecasts uh, as well. It's very powerful. So he writes in his uh, the upcoming March, Tomorrow's World magazine, on all-knowing science. Mr. Smith writes, Proverbs 25.2 tells us, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. And scientific practice is one of the best examples of searching out a matter. Advancements that came through the scientific method have greatly enhanced our lives and addressed many sources of human disease, discomfort, and distress. We've learned some of the secrets of the universe, and our understanding of our world is richer for it. Yet science isn't God. It doesn't tell us right from wrong. The theories and experiments that reveal the secrets of the subatomic world also allowed us to build the atomic weapons that devastated Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, killing hundreds of thousands. So, yes, true science does help us to understand the glory, the complexity, and the intelligent design in God's creation. Mr. Wesson also wrote about the three pillars of stability in difficult times. I hope you read that, and I hope you all know what those three pillars are. That was in the January Tomorrow's World magazine. He writes, Bill Bryson is a prolific and captivating writer. Even though he is an evolutionist, he writes time and again about the miracle of life and the impossibility of it just happening by chance. Go figure in the body, a guide for occupants, Bill Bryson states the following. You could call together all the brainiest people who are alive, who are alive now, or have ever lived, and endow them with the complete sum of human knowledge, and they could not between them make a living single cell. Could not make a single living cell. And, uh, in the next paragraph, Mr. Wesson writes, he writes to life as a miracle. He's an evolutionist. Bryson understands that DNA is needed to make ourselves. But what is DNA? Your DNA is simply an instruction manual for making you, he writes. But how did the instruction manual come to be? And how did the first protein come to be since proteins need other proteins to assemble themselves? So these are many of the missions in the body and in a short history of nearly everything, another book by Bryson, that any truly thinking person ought to wonder how anyone can believe such a preposterous theory as evolution. I like the way Mr. Weston writes in uh, Tomorrow's World magazine. So godly thinking seeks true knowledge. First Thessalonians 5.21, prove all things, test all things. Hold fast that which is good. 
And I'll refer you also to the sermon, What is the Greatest Reality? And in that sermon, we discuss various dimensions of knowledge. There's scientific truth. And, of course, we have the Real God Proofs and Promises booklet by uh, Dr. Douglas Vineo. And this weekend, as you heard, we have the telecast on who is the real God. And I hope you all know and have proven to yourself, as Mr. Wesson challenges the readers of Tomorrow's World magazine in that article on the three pillars. Creation demands a creator. Life demands a life giver. Law demands a lawgiver. And whatever you come back to the theory of evolution, you have to come back to the very beginning. What is the source? And we find intelligent design. But what is the source of that intelligence? The intelligent design community disciplines themselves not to mention God because they were trying to be in the argument with the evolutionists and keep it into the materialistic uh, world without getting into metaphysics. But uh, one of those uh, intelligent design people had to admit, yes, the intelligence we see in creation, there has to be a source for that intelligence. So we thank God that he's revealed the truth to us, the truth that makes us free. John 8, verse 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. As uh, Mr. Wesson was writing in the uh, Tomorrow's World magazine about uh, Britannia, uh, Britannia shall never be slaves. And that's, uh, that's in this, well, that's in the current magazine, uh, the current February uh, magazine, uh, Rule Britannia. And uh, Mr. Wesson talks about the British and their song, that they will never be slaves. But he goes on to point out how the whole world is in slavery. He that is a slave, uh, he who sins is a slave of sin. And he told the Jews when they said that, well, we're free. Well, no, they weren't free. Because Jesus told them, he that sins is a slave of sin. But thankfully, God has given us that freedom. And we thank God that he is real, and we know what is real and what is unreal. And by the way, in terms of uh, secular knowledge, I uh, received this brochure on uh, the, great, the great courses. It's uh, sponsored by the Smithsonian Institute. And uh, all courses, $35 or less. So I looked at them, and it said, oh, it was a, uh, uh, it ended with a deadline of February 4th. But I, I really wanted this one DVD course, 24 uh, DVDs, or 24 three-half-hour lectures. And the DVD course uh, was retailing for $249.95. And so I called them and said, this this could worth $35, but it was beyond the deadline. Well, I gave them the, the catalog number, and they were willing to uh, sell me not only that one course, which I wanted, and that was a total of a visual guide to the universe. And this was 18 half-hour videos, uh, which says... Uh, from Saturn's ring to the heart of the Milky Way and from colliding galaxies to cataclysmic gamma ray bursts, the spectacular sights of the cosmos are now as easy to see as the stars above. 
a visual guide to the universe. So anyway, so when I ordered that course for $249.95 for $35, and they said, oh, well, you can get the other one, uh, the companion one with it, which is uh, the night sky. That was also $199, but you can get the two of them not just for 35 and 35 but the two of them for $47. So I got $450 worth of uh, videos for $47. Anyway, if you would like to order some, let me know and I'll help you. But all kinds of courses in here, how to play the piano, how to play the guitar, uh, just... Wonderful courses after wonderful courses. But, of course, the most important courses for us are the Bible. And I hope that most of you have taken the Tomorrow's World Bible Study course. And if you're not, I hope you're doing that now. So how do we saturate our mind with the Word of God? Well, one of the ways, of course, is memorizing Scripture. What I did when I had to battle those wrong thoughts coming to mind of memorizing Philippians 4, verse 8. So... When I was a boy, I learned uh, Psalm 1, Psalm 23, and Psalm 100, and I've since learned Psalm 121, and I've learned part of one of my favorite psalms. I think it's one of uh, Mr. Wesson's favorite psalms, Psalm 103. So how many of you can recite from memory at least one psalm? You can see your hands. Okay. Okay, we only... (laughs) Oh, why... Well, they have two people that can write. Oh, I say, oh, thank you. We've got five people uh, that can recite Psalm. Oh, Psalm, Psalm 1. Uh, blessed, is he, blessed is the man that walks not in the way of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, or seats in the, sits in the seat of the scornful. But this light is in the law of the God, of the law of God. And in this law does he meditate day and night. And he should be like a tree planted by the river's water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. But the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff with the winds blows away. And for God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I used to, at the uh, summer educational program, uh, challenge our teens. Uh, what are the two major Conclusions to Psalm 1, prosper and perish. Oh, brethren, uh, look, I'd like to urge you, please, 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 could you memorize one psalm? Thank you. Uh, Psalm 100 and Psalm 121, the Lord is my, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I probably... When I can't sleep, I probably recite that in my my bed uh, maybe every other night, if not uh, most nights. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For God is with me. We need to have the mind of Christ. We need to be thinking. So I encourage you all to start memorizing at least one psalm, if not three or four or five. So in the summary for this first challenge, practice godly thinking. As we prepare for the Passover, examine your thoughts. Are they godly thoughts? Are you 
as we read in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, are you casting down arguments at every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ? Are you growing in secular knowledge based on true facts? Are you using human reason apart from biblical principles? Because mankind has used human reasoning because he took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and has rejected God's standards of right and wrong and absolute truth. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, verse Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. So, brethren, answering these questions and taking action will help you prepare for the Passover in the days of unleavened bread. Next challenge we want to talk about is the matter of practicing godly meditation. The principles, of course, are very similar to godly thinking, and the principles are crossover and reinforce one another. We have several sermons on uh, meditation. Uh, practice godly meditation. That's sermon number 622. The meditation of my heart. Uh, number 835, and one by Mr. Peter Nathan, Study to Meditate. That's sermon number 1099. And then if you want to go on our website, the lcg.org website, you can read Dr. Meredith's LCN article, which was September, October 2005, Christian Meditation. Well, actually, you know, Christian Meditation, that's right. Now, Mr. Weston also, when it came to meditation, what does he tell us? This is what he writes in the upcoming March, April 2021, in his article, To the Overcomers. Quote, this article has explained very little that most longtime church members have not heard before, but have truly gotten. But have we truly gotten it? If not, and that applies to far too many, What can we do to get it? The answer is found in a simple but too often neglected tool for spiritual growth, meditation. It is too easy to read something without taking the time to think and deeply consider how it applies to the self. If you have a problem of complaining, consider spending a few minutes at the beginning of each day thinking about why you complain, when you are most likely to complain, what it is that you are likely to complain about, and what you need to do to overcome that habit. Focus on overcoming the problem, ask for and accept God's forgiveness, and talk to him candidly about this sin. Meditation, Mr. Weston writes, is clearly a neglected tool for overcoming. Each day, consider what it is that you are trying to overcome, reminding yourself that you can do so with God's help. And always remember that it is the overcomers who will make it to the promised land, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. So we need the word of God and to make it a part of our life. I already read to you Psalm 1 and verse 1, and that's in our hymnal as well. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful.
Dr. Meredith wrote about true Christian meditation. Uh, this is from the uh, Living Church, no, Tomorrow's World magazine, Do You Seek God, uh, July, August 2014. He writes about true Christian meditation. He writes, it is also vital to learn the importance of Christian meditation. This is not simply emptying your mind as some of the Eastern religions proclaim. It is rather the focusing of your mind on a single, single theme, turning it over and over in your mind to gain understanding. So your theme should be trying to truly understand what God is saying through his inspired word. You should, therefore, take time after each study period, and perhaps again later in the day, to carefully meditate on what you have read. Ask God over and over to give you genuine understanding, knowledge, and the willingness to do his will as revealed in his inspired word. So that's from Dr. Meredith's article, True Christian Meditation, uh, July, August, Tomorrow World Magazine, uh, 2014. So what is meditation? I asked my wife that at uh, breakfast one time. She said, it's deep thought about a subject with God's guidance for a deeper understanding of truth on a subject. One of the uh, excellent uh, Bible study guides or aids is the New Unger's Bible Dictionary. And this is uh, the definition it gives for meditation. A private devotional act consisting in deliberate reflection upon some spiritual truth or mystery accompanied by mental prayer and by acts of the affection and of the will, especially formation of resolutions as to future conduct. Meditation is a duty that ought to be attended by all who wish well to their spiritual interests. It should be deliberate, close, and continuous, quoting Psalm 1, verse 2, Psalm 119, verse 97. So one of the purposes of meditation is understanding. Uh, Proverbs 4, verse 7. Proverbs 4, verse 7 states, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. Now, there's many different ways of meditating, and uh, one that I uh, practice is a topical study. You top. Uh, look up the word meditate or meditation, and you take a look at Psalm, started with Psalm 1. Again, in his law, he meditates day and night. So then you have Psalm 1 and verse 4. Then you look across the page, and uh, Psalm 4 and verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed. Be still. Then I have a little notation next to Psalm 4, verse 4, 5, verse 1. So it's a chain. You can put it in your old chain and have, highlight that in your Bible. So I can turn to uh, Psalm 5 and verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. And so it just goes on and on. For, that's one of the ways is a topical study. But there are three, give you three brief benefits of meditation. Three brief, brief benefits, three benefits of meditation. 
Godly meditation leads to success in life. We just recited in, in Psalm 1, whatsoever he does shall prosper. That's in Prov 1. So meditation and prosper. Joshua 1 and verse 9. Think of the way he said, what you meditate and you will be successful. I won't turn there, but you can check Joshua verses 1 through uh, verse 9. Godly meditation secondly helps to helps you to pray more effectively. Hosea 7 verse 14. They never put their heart into their prayers. It's the Moffat translation. So some of us have sleepy time prayers. Uh, I've gone to sleep uh, praying. And, uh, but there are other times you need to stir up yourself. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It tells us in James. There's a quote by Jeremiah, Jeremy Taylor. He says, quote, Our wandering thoughts in prayer are but the neglect of meditation. According as we neglect meditation, so are our prayers imperfect. So, of course, I hope you all have your strategies of prayer. And one of them, of course, is following the outline prayer in Matthew, the sixth chapter, our Father who is in heaven. And you can meditate just on that verse, that very first topic in the outline prayer. Our Father in heaven. And who is God? Well, see the telecast this weekend, the real God. He's our Father. He's the Father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, so it tells us in Ephesians, the third third chapter. Uh, He's the Creator. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy, it tells us in God's word. He's the life giver. He's the director of life. He fulfills prophecy. He answers prayers. He's the eternal who heals. So God our Father has many different characteristics. And you could just pray. I remember one time years ago. Uh, just praying a whole hour just on the, ma- the matter of God as being the creator. I was, I still remember kneeling beside the, uh, window back there in our home in Big Sandy, Texas, and it was a summer day and I had a screen, the window open, there was a screen, and there was a fly on the window, and there was a spider trying to get that fly, and every time the, the spider would move, the fly, the fly would move, and it was just, That's what I was praying about God's creation. It was quite a connection at the time. But uh, what an inspiring consideration when you think of all of God's creation, from the micro-machines in the human cell to the two trillion galaxies that are out there, uh, and the matter of God creating in human character. And those of you know that you have met and visited with those who are dying and You went to encourage that person, and that person instead encouraged you. And you saw in that person, who is a saint of God, dying perhaps of cancer, that God had created that person righteous, beautiful, inspiring, holy, righteous character. And you realize, yes, that's the great creation that God is creating. Turn to Psalm 139. 
in Psalm uh, third, 139. Though God gives us his thoughts, and we can have godly thoughts as well. I remember one time, I forget what the question was, but I remember my wife, when I asked something about what was one of the greatest benefits that God gives us, and she said, to have the thoughts of God. Psalm 139, starting with uh, verse 17, um, David is saying, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So what God is giving us is the encouragement to think more deeply. We face the reality of death, we think more deeply. Dr. Meredith wrote the article a long time ago about the traumatic experience that happened in his youth. He had a real close friend who was uh, wrestled with. And he wrote this article, Why Did God Let Jimmy Die? His friend was killed in a wrestling match. And he wrote in the January, February 2000 world, uh, 11 uh, tomorrow's world, What is the meaning of your life? As he contemplated his friend's death, who was uh, killed in a wrestling accident, said, Over the next several years after Jimmy's death, I continued to meditate on these things. I tried to think through why we were born, what life was really all about, and what was the ultimate purpose for our lives. Our local Protestant preacher drone on and on with nice generalities, being good citizens, being kind to others, perhaps sending help to the starving Chinese, as we suppose they were back then. Although our pastors do good thoughts were probably helpful in a way, they did not ever stir me to any kind of particular action, nor did they even begin to answer the growing questions in my mind as to why we are really here. Why must all humans suffer and die? If we are to go to heaven after death, as my preacher said, would we just sit around up there playing harps with nothing to do? Is that all there is, I wondered? Well, I think several of us have had that kind of experience. And we've been threatened. I know how many of you have asked this question before, have had life-threatening experiences. Let me see your hands here. You know, it looks like about 35% of you have had that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had to pray. I was almost gasping for breath, and I had to ask my wife to pray for me. I thought I was dying at the moment. But it was almost almost like an asthmatic attack. That was some years ago. But we had several other life-threatening experiences over, over a period of time. Though godly meditation draws us closely to God, but we need to think about the deep things of life. So when we face reality and meditate on God's word, we can have be closer to God. Um, godly meditation brings us closer to God. So when is a good time to meditate? 
When did King David meditate? Psalm 63 and verse 6. We'll turn to Psalm 63 and verse 6. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. So Dr. Meredith writes, David took time to meditate and to think on what was truly important. He often did this outdoors in the midst of God's marvelous creation, looking up at the moon and stars. He did not have a radio or television blatting away in the background or a phone ringing or other distractions while he was spending time seeking God. So, remember David said in Psalm 8 and verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit or you care for him? So you can meditate at any time. There's a more recent search. I get this health newsletter from a Massachusetts hospital. It costs mind, mood, and memory. And it's saying that more recent research on mindfulness, they'll talk about meditation, but they'll also talk about mindfulness, that how helpful it is to your all general health. And mindfulness they define as focusing on what, while you're walking, you're seeing maybe a bird fly in the air, or you see some flowers, or you see the clouds, uh, you focus. You're aware of things. And that's a little different, as, of course, as Dr. Meredith said, the Eastern religions would say, empty your mind. You know, you just have one mantra saying over and over again, no, God wants you to focus and to think. And, of course, that's quoted in Hebrews 2 and verse 6, when David said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, what is man that you're mindful of him? So we ask those basic questions in life. What, what is life? And why was I born? And what is the incredible human potential? Of course, Mr. Armstrong wrote a whole book on that by that title, The Incredible Human Potential. And what is our ultimate destiny? I hope you've read that booklet, uh, Your Ultimate Destiny. So taking time to think produces the benefits. Godly meditation leads to success in life. Godly meditation will help you pray more effectively. And godly meditation draws you closer to God. So how do you meditate? There are various methods for doing so. Just as we read, David thought about thinking on his bed at night, and I do. Some of my meditation just comes automatically when I'm praying, and some thought will come to mind, and I think God actually gives me that thought through his spirit of something that has been a loose end that maybe I should have written to someone or given someone a phone call, and God's spirit brings that to my mind. And I, I ask God to... Uh, bring to my mind those things that I need to get done and something that I've overlooked or forgotten. I call them loose ends. Uh, I have actually, 
uh, have a, a page of my computer, loose ends, writing down those things that I, I haven't gotten accomplished that should have been accomplished. But normally, if you are going to seriously meditate, you want to select a topic, perhaps get a, a notepad, a writing pad, maybe even kneel beside your bed and then start thinking. Uh, why was I born? Maybe you're going to start writing down some ideas and some thoughts of why you were born. I do that way, done that for many years when uh, doing the uh, sermon preparation. I would put down the topic, you kneel down beside the bed and, and start writing notes on a, on a, a scribble text pad. So get to a time in a, a quiet and private place and ask God for understanding. But one of the fundamental principles for meditating is simply asking the questions. What? Why? Where? How? When? Which? I think the two most important questions are how and why. And, of course, I tell, tell the ministers and when I was giving the seminars on sermon preparation or delivery, uh, you tell people to love one another. But you have to ask the question, how do you love one another? So in meditating, ask those questions, how and why. Dr. Meredith gives the example in the LCN article, writing about the millennium and our part in God's family. He writes, the wonderful destiny in part of what we picture each year at the Feast of Tabernacles from time to time throughout the year, we should go back and review the notes we took during the feast from the excellent sermons given. We should meditate frequently on this and let the reality of God's coming government be uppermost in our minds. And that's from his article, Growth Through Servant Leadership, uh, Tomorrow's World Magazine, no, LCN Magazine, uh, January, February uh, 2011. Another part of effective meditation is to make sure that you are meditating on these things. I already quoted that, of course, from Philippians 4 in verse 8. In the New King James, it is, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, and if there's any virtue, if there's any praiseworthy, meditate on these things. There are two sermons on meditation or thinking. It's one by Dr. Meredith, Hope and Positive Thinking. That's Dr. Meredith's sermon number 134. And Mr. D. Partian gave a sermon on positive thinking. He said, sermon number 506, are you positive? I think you've known a lot of people are negative. It's just they always think um, the the worst possibility of things that can happen. But some of you did not know Mr. Party and Mr. D. Bar Party and worked here at headquarters. He was with us, of course, in San Diego when we moved to Charlotte in 2003, and uh, he died in. Uh, 2010. He died December 8, 2010. He was, of course, directing the French language of God's work around the world. 
And even when he was 93 years old, he would come to the office here in Charlotte uh, every morning, every day. He said a tremendously positive example. And I just found this in my notes a while ago that Mr. Pardian taught French at Ambassador College. And he asked my wife, Catherine, to play the solo for the French class, the meditation that you heard for the special music today, since the composer was French, Jules Massonet. And then Catherine was able to play that once again for Mr. and Mrs. Apartian the Wednesday afternoon before he died that night. Mrs. Apartian noted that Mr. Apartian had a slight smile on his face when she played that violin solo. So Mr. Apartian set an example of, of being a very positive person. So what are the topics that we should be meditating on? I'll give you several topics to complete, to think about as we conclude the last uh, hour of this sermon this afternoon. Oh, how much time do we have? Okay. Okay, we have uh, 16 minutes remaining, so I'll try not to take all 16 of that. So topic number one, claim God's promises. You know, Second Peter 2 and verse, verse 2, that God has given us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we may be taught partakers of his divine nature. What are your favorite promises? Uh, do you have any favorite promises? Have you ever claimed God's promises? They're exceedingly great and precious promises. We have sermons on that. Uh, topic and also articles in Tomorrow's World magazine on claiming God's promises. One of my favorites is Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Of course, those desires need to be biblical. And I've told you the story. I won't go through the whole story again about one of the desires of my heart was to visit Jerusalem. And I prayed that. Back in 1967, when the Jews, the Israelis, took over the old city of Jerusalem and prayed that I could go to Jerusalem and claim that promise that God would give me the desire of my heart, Psalm 37.4. Seventeen years later, God sent me and my wife there as faculty chaperones to the dig, the archaeological dig in the city of David. So God answered that prayer. And 17 years later, I'm still claiming that promise. There's so many other promises. Philippians 4.19, My God shall provide all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know the story in Mr. Herbert Armstrong's autobiography of claiming that promise because he needed 10 cents to buy milk for the crying baby. You can read that story in the autobiography. And 1 Corinthians 10.13, that he will not tempt us above that which we are able, but will give a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. And those are wonderful promises God gives. So meditate on claiming God's promises. Number two, think about God's law. We sing that, of course, in our hymn, Psalm 119, 197. Let's turn there. Psalm 119. Uh, one, uh, one, 
Yes, not verse 97. It, it's so powerful. It's one that I tried to encourage our teenagers at the Living Youth Camp uh, to realize that our teenagers can be ahead spiritually than their physical high school teachers. Psalm 119 and verse 97. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. When you know the Ten Commandments, you know absolute truth. You know absolute right from absolute wrong. That makes you wiser than your enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than my teachers. Of course, our high school students don't have more uh, mathematics skills than their mathematics teacher, but they have more spiritual understanding. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments. So number two, think on God's law. I, I remember... I had been baptized for a couple of years, but I remember as a ambassador freshman, I was thinking I needed to meditate on the commandments. So I started meditating on the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the eternal your God has given you. And I remember thinking back about my youth and my relationship with my parents and how I was not the most... Uh, I guess, um, uh, cooperative uh, young person. But I remember how, how my mother must have, you know, changed my diapers and how, oh, and all the suffering that they went through to me. And I just bawled. I just cried. I mean, God just gave me a certain uh, repentance after meditating on the fifth commandment in relationship to my parents. And of course, when I, my relationship with them really improved after I was converted because I tried to uh, give them more and great and honor and respect than I ever had uh, during my teenage years. So think about God's law. Number three, number two, think about God's law. Number three, think about God's statutes and judgments. Think about God's statutes and judgments. So, Where are they? Well, they're, of course, in the book of the law, uh, the first five books of the Bible, but particularly Leviticus 18 through 23. Leviticus 18 through 19 and 20 talk about uh, sexual principles and what is right and what's wrong. And, of course, uh, Leviticus 23, the statutes of the holy days. So you want to think about the statutes and the judgments. Number three. And that's, uh, Dr. Merritt said, Bill, now for your future, LCM 2010, September, October, he writes, we should constantly read and reread thoroughly, thoughtfully, the New Testament, and then go back regularly to study and meditate on the laws and the statutes of the Old Testament, which spell out in detail the mind of God and the specific way Christ ruled the human nation of Israel through his servants in times past. So number three, Think about God's statutes and judgments. Number four, think about God's blessings. Uh, write down the, the, 
the, the blessing that God has given you. We've had sermons on thankfulness and gratitude. Uh, one more recently, a sermon, In Everything Give Thanks. Uh, Rod McNair gave a sermon, Thanksgiving, A Bigger Picture. And um, one that we had recently updated, Abounding in Thanksgiving. And the Power of Gratitude by Dr. Scott Winnale, uh, sermon number 1037. So number four, count your blessings. Number five, meditate on meditation. In other words, uh, as I already illustrated, do a word study on the word meditate or think or meditation. You link one scripture to another. You have a chain reference. And you can start there in Psalm 1 and verse 2. So number five, meditate on meditation. Number six, think about God's work. I hope you all received uh, Mr. Weston's uh, recent co-worker letter, February 18th, 2021. And he gave good news about the work and the progress in God's work. He said, we recently signed contracts with new television stations. Tomorrow's World Telecast began airing on KCDO Denver, Colorado, Sunday, February 14th at 8.30 a.m. We are scheduled to go on WDCA Television in Washington, D.C., Sundays at 7.30 a.m. beginning February 21st. That was uh, last Sunday. And we, I believe we got 50 or 51 responses for that, but this is an amazing thing. This is what we... What I have wanted for some time is that, that the message, the powerful message and witness we're giving of the good news of the coming kingdom of God and the warning to the Israelite nations go to our capital in Washington, D.C. So now we have a television station right there in Washington, D.C. You can be praying uh, that the president and his staff and the Congress will be seeing our telecast. Mr. Weston also writes in the co-worker letter, Regional Director Peter Nathan reports that our Dutch members are excited about the response level to our new Facebook ads, as we heard Mr. DeSimone uh, read some of that good news in the announcements today, and that they have uh, German language has gotten uh, requests from 118 different countries. So I hope, brother, that you've responded to the co-worker letter, you know, uh, have you put a dollar in the envelope and returned it or uh, put it online? Uh, if you uh, are donate, uh, donate online, have you done that? Uh, I always try, my wife and I always try to put a check in the envelope to show that we care about what Jesus Christ is writing to us in the coworker letter. That we want to support and respond to that coworker letter. So pray for the coworker letters and respond to it. And uh, I hope that you're putting in a dollar, five dollars, or ten dollars into the envelope, or uh, or more. <laughs> so think about God's work around the world, and uh, it, it's such a wonderful promise and revelation of God when you read Revelation five nine. Well, let's turn there briefly. I wasn't intending to uh, mention this, but. When you think about God's work around the world, Revelation 5 and verse 9, of course we called us to be kings and priests, to reign on the earth in verse 10. But Revelation 5 verse 9, 
And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, which we'll be remembering in the Passover. Notice this. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. We have scattered people with one person in one nation. I think there are about 113 individuals around scattered all over the world who cannot attend with regular Sabbath services. And there were about 53 or 54 countries in which we have only one person. And you just wonder, is God training that one person to rule over that one nation? But just remember, when you think about God's work and God's church, that he said, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, he's going to make us kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So meditate on God's work. Number six. Number seven. Ask yourself the deep questions of life. We already discussed that matter. We face trials and we think about the lessons we should have learned. Dr. Meredith, when he was suffering from cancer, said, I need to learn whatever lessons I can learn. So what lessons are we learning? Years ago, it was back about in the 60s, it was a living, uh, the good news from the Radio Church of God called the, uh, an article by David John Hill. He was an evangelist, a very colorful teacher. He, I had him for our Old Testament survey. He was a, a very inspiring teacher. David John Hill wrote an article in the Living Church, I mean the Living Church News, uh, the Good News magazine at that time titled, What, What, what am I, or who am I? I forget the exact title. But he assigned everyone in the living, uh, in the Good News magazine to write an essay to pray and ask God to reveal to you, as you write your essay, your weaknesses and your strengths. And once you start writing that essay, once you start writing something, you, you think you finish, go back and pray again and ask God to show you some more. I've done that two or three times. And this one I will share. This is a little personal, but this is an essay I wrote in 1989. This is probably the second or third time that I went through that self-examination process. Here's what I wrote. I won't read all of it to you, of course. I am God's begotten son and servant and younger brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are no other gods in the universe who are the kingdom of God the family of God. I am baptized into the body of Christ by God's Spirit. I need to pray more, do more for his body, his family, in promoting our being knit together in love. Romans 5, verse 5. I have been assigned the responsibility as a presenter for the World Tomorrow program, having taped about 40 programs over the past three years. I need to and I won't share that part with you. I have been appointed Registrar and Director of Admissions of God's Headquarters College. I need to, and I won't share that with you. 
I am also a husband of the most beautiful wife on earth who has great insight and wisdom as led by the Holy Spirit. I need to set a better example in love, family activity, and home management. I need to attack my weaknesses more zealously and win more victories through Jesus Christ our Lord, 1 Corinthians 15. Through the Passover and the blood of Jesus Christ, I can now see myself more clearly. I can be forgiven of my sins, my past, my lack of doing good works and righteousness. Thank God that through Christ I can do all things, Philippians 4.13, and be conformed to his image. As I cooperate with, submit, and contribute to God's family, God will bless the work of his church even more abundantly. So I encourage you to do the same, to write an essay, uh, What I Am. And that will help you in the self-examination in preparation for the Passover upcoming. So ask yourself the deep questions of life and death. And think about the future. Think about the coming kingdom of God. And to realize that God's kingdom must come as we cry and sigh for the abominations that take place in the world. We visualize peace on earth during the millennium. Have you read the booklet, World Ahead, What Will It Be Like? We visualize God's throne, Revelation 4, as I gave in the sermon a few weeks ago on God's throne of grace. We visualize the new Jerusalem in Revelation, the 21st chapter. So, brethren, godly meditation is a vital key to spiritual growth. Are you loving God with all your mind? And are you taking every thought into the captivity of Christ? One final scripture. I know this is Mr. Ruddleson's famous favorite scripture. Uh, Psalm 19. Turn to Psalm 19. And this does answer the question we brought out, the challenges of godly thinking and the challenge of godly meditation. Psalm 19. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. So, brethren, God wants us to think like he thinks. He's called us to be the greatest thinkers in the world. And he tells us to have the mind of Christ. So pray that your thoughts will harmonize with God's way of life. God's way of thinking, meditate on the scriptures daily, and as you saturate your mind with the word of God, your character, your mind, and your spirit will grow in the very nature of Christ. So this week, think deeply, see the big picture, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and look forward to the resurrection and the not too pure, not too far distant future. So, brethren, this week as we practice godly thinking and godly meditation, as you practice God's way of life and reflect on His grace and His mercy in your life, 
you will take the Passover with a positive attitude and a deeply grateful attitude. So may we all pray the prayer of King David. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer.